I realized there are many things that I needed to surrender um, to be able to better obey God, especially with our finances. Every relationship I feel has a spender and a saver. Um, he's definitely the saver and I'm the spender. Um, I love to give, but sometimes I give before um, paying things I need to. And so it's been hard because I've created some really bad habits. And so I'm working on surrendering that to God and just praying a lot more like, Jesus, do I really need this? Um, can you give me some more self-control in this? Because I wanna do what's right, because I want to be able to help those around me. I wanna help those in my community. And I can't do that if I'm always giving into those impulses. Um, I think there are lots of things I needed to surrender. Um, one of those was a personal opinion of what I thought I should give to God, what I thought um, I needed for my life. And um, to totally surrender to Him and let Him um, guide me in the choices that I needed to make. Um, something I had to surrender to obey God's direction was some control. Um, I tend to have a lot of control issues and um, I always wanted to be that frugal person who held on to everything, made sure everything was accounted for, but I feel like by giving up some of that control, God has showed me that there are needs out there that are surpass what I would need. And by giving it away that it's helping someone else and He's always come back and provided for me. So that stress of worrying about what if I give too much away is really not um, there anymore because I know that by giving away, God's gonna bless me even more. It's interesting because we found that oftentimes if we struggle to surrender something, then oftentimes God has a way of surrendering it for us. And so um, one of the things that um, happened was I was unexpectedly downsized and that instantly forced us to, well, forced me to give up doing the budget and ask Carrie for help. It forced us to, um, for me, it forced me to surrender pride and my ego. And I had to ask my wife for help. And uh, that's when we decided we needed to go on a budget. We needed, we actually forced ourselves to downsize homes and learn to be content more with less. And uh, that really did a lot in surrendering our heart and forcing us to really decide what we treasured more, not only in our walk with each other, but also with the Lord. Have you ever tried to trap a monkey? No, I, I, neither have I. But this past week, I read about how you go about it. So before I tell you the story, let me just be clear that I don't believe that the origin of our life comes from this species. But I do believe that humans and monkeys do have quite similar characteristics. Let me give you just a few. First of all, our genetic makeup actually has some similarities. We actually have large brains for our body size. We tend to walk upright on two legs. That's something we share in common. Uh, both monkeys and humans have long lifespans and you grow over a long period of time. And we have a very minimal offspring, usually one at a time. That's something we share in, con 
uh, with common with our fellow monkeys. Um, another thing is that we live in complex social groups. That's something that we share in common. And we also have very similar personality traits. Did you know that monkeys can be extroverted? Monkeys can be conscientious. Monkeys can also be neurotic. Maybe you've seen that behavior at the local zoo. But there's probably one most common characteristic that we share with these primates, and that is our ability to grasp things in our hands. That's something that many species don't share, and that's exactly what gets monkeys into trouble. If you want to trap a monkey, let me give you a fairly reliable way to do that. First of all, take a glass jar and make this jar possible to where the monkey could insert their hand with their fingers open. And on the inside of that glass jar, put something that a monkey wants, like maybe a piece of fruit. And place that jar with the fruit near the monkey. Now, when that monkey sees something that they want, they'll stick their hands in that jar and grab onto whatever's in that jar that they want. And that's where the monkey is trapped because for its life, it will not let go of what it has clenched in its fist. And therefore, it's stuck in the jar and cannot get out. There are some similarities that uh, we have with monkeys, and that might lend itself to be one of those major ones right there. We, uh, like monkeys... All of us, myself included, and I'll make a fair assumption you too, are vulnerable to being trapped. Today we're continuing this journey about learning how to be generous from Jesus. We're looking at some of the teachings of Jesus and also the, some interactions that Jesus had with others. All trying to discover how we can be generous in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we give, uh, like Jesus. And so far along this, we've looked at a teaching that Jesus had, a story told, where we learned that being generous starts with being principled, that everything we have belongs to God. He's given it to us. He expects us to steward it well and will be held accountable for how we steward what he's given us. Time, money, relationships, opportunities, abilities. Last week, we looked at an observation that Jesus made while he was in the temple with his 12 disciples. And he observed this woman who was elderly, elderly and poor, and she dropped two copper coins in the collection. And Jesus made an observation. He said, this woman has given more than anybody else because she gave everything. It showed us that not only is generosity principle, but it's also wholehearted. And today we want to learn that generosity is also surrendered. We're, we're trying to nurture this heart of generosity like Jesus. And today what we want to do is look at an, an uh, example or an interchange that Jesus had with a person that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record this interaction with Jesus. And the person that Jesus interacts with, all three described together as being young, rich, and powerful. How many of you would sign up to be described that way? I mean, doesn't that sound like a pretty desirable description? It was true in the first century. It's true today. Most people want to be young. They want to be rich. They want to be powerful. Maybe attractive would be another thing that we throw in there. But many times we find ourselves really on two other extremes. Either we find ourselves like young but poor. I mean, like maybe finishing high school with a borrowed car. Maybe we're in college eating ramen, trying to work two jobs to pay for college. Maybe we're newly married and we've bought our first house. We've mortgaged ourselves pretty high at a high level. We're trying to struggle to pay utilities and other responsibilities. We have lots of energy. We just have very little resources to enjoy. That's one extreme. Or maybe you find yourself old and rich. I mean, maybe you're well-established in your career. Maybe you're nearing retirement. 
Maybe you're at a financial status that's fairly stable. You have enough resources to eat out a lot, to do some traveling, to spoil the kids, maybe even the grandkids. You have maybe little debt. You have retirement and investments providing you security. You've got plenty of resources, but the energy level just seems to be low these days. You find yourself tired at the end of a work day or a work week. Plenty of resources, just little energy to enjoy those things. We find ourselves either one of those two extremes commonly. This past Thursday, we had a Q&A session for people under 40, but anybody could come and we saw people all across the spectrum, young, old, rich, poor, struggling to pay their bills, trying to figure out how to live by financial principles that are in the Bible. I mean, all that extreme. And our purpose for having that gathering was just to create a safe place where we could ask questions and also look to the Bible for some answers. And we hope to have several more of those in the future. Appreciate our team who put that together and all the panelists who participated and also those who showed up to participate. Today, we want to look at this person who, again, was described as being young, rich, and powerful. And we'll look at Mark's account to begin with of this interaction that he had with Jesus. Matthew or Mark chapter 10, let me begin reading in verse 17. You can follow along. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. All three Gospels record this interaction with Jesus following on the heels of an interaction Jesus had actually with children. Jesus had welcomed children to come up and sit on his lap and the disciples were trying to shoo the kids away because in the ancient world, children were viewed as insignificant. They were just property. They were in the way. They were totally dependent on people for all of their needs. Yet in Jesus' eyes, children were significant of high value. In fact, in that moment when the disciples were shooing the kids away, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, anyone who will not inherit the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms. He blessed, he placed his hands on them and blessed them. There is a stark contrast between the children and this man who makes his way toward Jesus. This man was probably in the crowd where Jesus was interacting with the children. He probably heard firsthand Jesus' statement about the kingdom of God. He shows respect to Jesus, recognizing him as a teacher of authority by kneeling before him. He calls him a good teacher. And then he asks an age-old question that's probably something that we've all felt in our mind or in our heart. The man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew quotes him as saying, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds to his question with a question. Doesn't that just annoy you when your parents do that or maybe when the teacher does that? Well, it's actually known as a really strong teaching tool to engage the learner into discovery. 
And in his response, Jesus makes some very definitive statements. The first thing he says is, why do you call me good? Only God is good. This could be a reference that Jesus is making to himself, that declaring that he is God, fully God. He is therefore fully good, fully perfect. It also might be a teaching moment where Jesus begins to help this rich, young, powerful person to understand that salvation or eternal life is not about what you do. It's actually about what's been done. We have to also recognize it's actually what will be done because right now Jesus is still alive. He's not died on the cross or resurrected. But Jesus continues his response by pointing out that if you want to be good, keep the commandments. Now, that was a very Jewish theology. It, it, it goes back to the covenant that God made with his people through his servant Moses when he presented the Ten Commandments. And in that moment, Jesus rattles off five of the Ten Commandments, and he actually throws in maybe one that's not included, do not defraud. All of these that Jesus referenced were the common ways that people got rich in the ancient world. They could kill the person who was in charge and take their place. That's how they became powerful. They could steal from the wealthy. They could take a bribe to give false testimony. They could cheat others. Or they could even dishonor their parents by being entitled, demanding things, or even asking for their inheritance early, like the prodigal son did in the story that Jesus told. The man replied that he had not disobeyed any of these commands on his path to the current status he was experiencing in life. And I think that seems to be a pretty honest, sincere evaluation of his life. It's just misguided. The man replied that he had not been disobedient to all these. But the law was never intended to make us perfect, but rather to show our imperfection, as well as to help us realize that we have a desperate need for a Savior, a Savior that God promised he would send in the form of the Messiah, who would come and rescue people from their sins. Ironically, this man was claiming perfection in the presence of the only person who is truly perfect. That's Jesus himself, who was fully God. I think it's interesting that for a person who seemingly had it all, he was young, he was rich, he was powerful, he seemed to have lived a pretty moral life up until this point, yet he recognized that something was missing. Matthew records him saying, what still do I lack? A couple weeks ago in Better Man, it's our men's ministry that happens on Wednesday morning and Thursday nights here at Crossroads. We're, we're starting this curriculum, and in the curriculum, uh, Paul Lingy, who was teaching that day, showed a clip of young Tom Brady. Young Tom Brady, about 12 to 13 years ago, after he'd only won two or three Super Bowls, and they asked Tom, like, what are you scared of? There doesn't seem to be anything that, that you're, you seem to be invincible, and Tom Brady looked at the camera and he says, I'll tell you what I'm scared of. I'm scared of life after football. That was like 13 years ago. He's won several championships since then. He seems to be kind of like the picture of the American dream. Young, talented, beautiful, according to the girls at my house. I mean, like everything he has, right? And yet we see in the media today his life kind of unraveling, his relationships unraveling, maybe even his ability on the feel right now unraveling? I wonder if it's because he recognizes that while he might have it all in our world standards, maybe there's something that's missing. When Jesus heard this young man say that he was missing something, he agreed with him. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. I want to make it clear that this interaction that Jesus is having with this young man is not tense. It's not even condemning. I hope you notice how Mark describes Jesus' posture toward him. He says he looked at him and he loved him, had compassion on him. Jesus knew why and how this man had been created. He'd been created in the image of God and for God's glory. He knew where everything that this man had came from. His youthfulness, money, position of influence, that all came from God. And Jesus also knew while this man may have obeyed five of the Ten Commandments, there were a couple that he had broke, like the first one, don't make any other gods before me. Or maybe the second one, don't make any graven images. Maybe even the tenth one, do not covet. Again, these commandments were not given to make us holy, but to define what life looks like when we live according to God's design. And the man went away sad that day because he had erected a God that was not the one true God. This man was worshiping created things instead of the creator. This man had his heart and mind set on things of this world, not on the things above. This man was storing up treasures for himself on earth, not in heaven. He was holding on to the things that God had given him. You could say that he was trapped. You could even say maybe he had got his hand caught in the cookie jar. He was refusing to release his grip on the things that God had given him to steward, not to own. Jesus extended to this man the key to eternal life. It wasn't in selling all of his possessions. It wasn't in taking care of the poor. It was in surrendering his life to Jesus and following him. Jesus made that perfectly clear many times throughout his time here on earth, saying things like this, something that Matthew recorded. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And then Jesus makes this statement. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can a person exchange for their soul? Jesus clearly communicates that true life is found in following him, and it requires complete surrender. It's the exchange of anything that we could hold on to for all that he offers us. Let's look at the rest of this moment after the rich, young, powerful man walks away from Jesus' offer. Matthew, Mark continues in verse 23. He says this, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at this words. Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up and he said, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's be clear what Jesus did say and what he did not say. He did not say that the rich could not enter the kingdom of God. Many well-resourced people all throughout history will be in heaven. 
Not because they're rich, but they're also not denied entrance because they are either. Jesus uses an illustration to make his point. He talks about the inability of a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I've heard some illustrations that try to unpack this by saying, well, there's this wall around Jerusalem and everywhere in this wall there are gates and one gate is called the eye of the needle. And for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle gate, the camel must get down on all of its knees and take off everything off of its back. That sounds really pretty for preachers, but it actually isn't really what Jesus is saying most likely. Another theory is that the eye of a needle, well, in this moment, there's a mistranslation. The word camel is actually a mistranslation of the word rope. It's hard for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. And that's really just trying to make something up again. What Jesus is really saying is it's difficult for rich people to get into heaven. And that leads us to ask the question, why? Why would Jesus say that? Well, I think the context of this moment gives us an indication. Remember, Jesus had just been welcoming children. He had just been pointing out that we must receive the kingdom of God like a child. Receive means that we can't earn. And children are completely dependent on someone else for everything that they have. Often those with significant financial resources find it difficult to understand that there are things in life that money just cannot buy. Those with significant financial means find it difficult to entrust themselves to anyone's care for any need. When you have something you want in your grasp, it is really hard to let it go. And that's not just true for money. That's true for anything that we might hold on to, to find our identity, our purpose, or even our security in other than God and him alone. Our time, our family, our grades, our free time, our reputation, our accomplishments, our health, our position. Did you notice the incorrectly placed pronoun I used? Our, O-U-R. Again, we must remember that all that we have is God's, and he's entrusted it to us to steward so that everything that he's given us can be used for his purposes and his glory, for serving him and others, regardless of how much that we've received. If we hold on to what we've been given by him with clenched fist, I think we'll find ourselves trapped, stuck, and sad. I think it's interesting that one commentator pointed out the description of this man who went away sad. The King James Version probably has a better word. The most accurate word would be grieved. And that word is the exact same description that's made of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying the night before he's crucified that he was grieved in his spirit so much that his sweat was like drops of blood. That's it. That sadness is represented by Jesus in that moment that he is facing the most ultimate dislocation, the ultimate disorientation. In that moment, he was losing his true joy in life, the true meaning of his life, the true core of his identity. That was his intimacy that he had with his father in heaven because sin was just about to separate the two of them. That's exactly what happens to you and me when we allow anyone or anything to take the throne of our hearts instead of God and him alone. Jesus' invitation to this rich, young, powerful man was to release the wealth that he thought would bring him, meaning purpose, identity, even security, and to cling to the only one thing that will, 
And that's Jesus himself. Jesus offered this man true life. Paul quoted Jesus these words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It is really difficult to give when we have what God has given us so tightly clenched with our grimy fingers that we won't let it go. So we must recognize that God is the source of everything that we have. Time, money, abilities, relationships, opportunities. Then we have to realize that we will find true joy when we don't hoard or hold on to these things for ourselves or make them our God by finding identity, purpose, meaning, even security in them. We become generous like Jesus and we find the ability to release our grip on these things or maybe better said, the grip that these things have on us we begin to release them by giving, by sharing them, by investing them into God's kingdom, investing them in serving him and other people. That's where we find our true identity. That's where we find our true purpose. And that's where we find our true security, our true joy. The amount of the money that this man had was not the issue. The issue was, is this money had him. By asking him to sell all that he had, Jesus was forcing him to examine Who's on the throne of your heart? With all his commendable qualities, this man still didn't love God with all of his heart. Possessions were his God, and they possessed him. Jesus was quoted in two different places saying these words, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Scholar J.S. Exel says this, while the human heart is big and powerful, it's not large enough to hold two thrones. Who or what that's on the throne of your heart is the who or what that gets your attention, affection, and devotion. When Jesus is on the throne of your heart as Savior, we recognize that we can't earn our salvation, but we only receive it through faith in him and his death on the cross. When Jesus is on the throne of our heart as Lord, then everything we are and everything that we have is surrendered to him for his purposes and for his glory. And putting Jesus alone on the throne of our heart is very difficult. And that's why I take courage in what Jesus said, all things are possible with God. Peter, person who always like, we can probably identify with the most, he responded to this whole interaction with Jesus and his words. He says, hey, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And I love how Jesus responds. He catalogs everything that they did leave. Yep, you guys lost, left your families. You left your jobs. You left your reputation. You left your relationships. You, you, you left all that to follow me. And Jesus says, in exchange for that decision to follow me, you have eternal life. Far outweighs, outcompares anything that they could have left. Martyred missionary Jim Elliott says this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think when we hear Jesus' words to the rich, young, powerful man, like sell all your possessions and give to the poor, we, we kind of associate that with things that would make the headline of the local news station or things that if we posted about, we'd get thousands of likes. It's those things that are big and bold and, and lead to just a lot of, a lot of um, attention. But I actually think it's often the simple, the sincere, even the surrendered expressions of living and loving like Jesus 
that have the most significant impact. Last week, we introduced something called the 4-1 Project. It's actually just a challenge to all of us to release the grip that we have on the things that God has given to us or maybe the hold that they have on us. And in simple but deliberate ways, begin to live generously and love generously, again, in very tangible ways. We talked about what you could do with one prayer, one minute, one gift or ability, and one dollar. These are just simple things that you and I can begin to invest in proper ways that bring glory to God, that make a difference in the lives of other people by serving them. If we just took some inventory of those things, let, let's start with time. Just think about it. If you took the time to encourage one person every day, at the end of a year, you would have 365 people that you would have encouraged. If, let's say, you spent 40 years doing that from the moment you made that decision until you died, at the end of your life, you would have encouraged 14,600 people. And it just comes simply by taking the time, making the time to say an encouraging word, to write a short note, to lend a helping hand, to offer some encouragement or support. One simple thing you can do with your time that makes a big difference in the lives of others. What about ability? I mean, if, if we all did one thing to serve God and his church, his body would be full and complete. Here's one of the light bulbs that we're praying really goes off for all of us who call ourselves Christ followers, and that is this. That the ability that all of us have, we at least all have one bag of gold, if you remember Jesus' story a couple weeks ago, we all have at least one ability that God's given us. And that ability often is something that we lean into, especially in like our vocational work. If you're good with math, you might be a math teacher or an accountant. If you're good with people, you might go into a, a, an industry that serves people. There's all kinds of expressions of that. But identifying that one thing that God has gifted you at, it translates into all aspects of your life. That gift and ability is useful for your vocational life. You can glorify God by doing that work well, using that ability well. You can also use that exact same ability to serve this community. And that same exact ability can often be used to serve God's church and his people. One of the groups of people I get to hang out with quite a bit here at Crossroads is the elders of Crossroads. To a man, these men are men of integrity. They're men who are humble. They are servant-hearted. They are compassionate. And they are men that I trust, not just with my vocational life. I actually trust them with my heart. They are the people who shepherd me. They are the people I willingly submit to because I trust them. It's amazing to watch them use their gifts to serve God's church, this community, and also to be involved in their vocational life. I'll give you one example. He didn't know I was going to use him today. He's actually sitting right here on the front row. He's serving today as one of our elders. It's Dave McClary. If you go into Dave McClary's profile in My Crossroads, he has three spiritual gifts listed there, and one of them is the gift of craftsmanship. Dave's the kind of guy who can fix anything or actually build anything. In fact, that worked out really good in his vocational life. He used to be a home builder. But now he uses that same craftsmanship gift Monday through Friday out at a place called SIGTEC that's on Lynch Road. He's teaching high school kids in this community how to build things. 
That's him using his gift in his work life, and he's doing that well. But Dave also uses that same exact gift, craftsmanship, to serve this community. On many Saturdays, you'll find Dave in someone else's house, fixing a roof, working on a door, doing simple home repairs to help those within our church or maybe in this community with one of our local partners. And Dave uses that same exact gift, craftsmanship, to serve this church by being on our facilities team. He helps maintenance and, and uh, repair things around this building or even help that those things get done. The same exact gift is used in all three of those contexts. And that's not unique to Dave. That's true for all of us. And so the action step is to identify how has God gifted you and how can that gift be useful in your vocational life, in the life of this church, in the life of this community. And we want to help you. That third expression of living and loving like Jesus that we talk about being sent, under that section of the roadmap, there's a tool that you can use to take an assessment of the gifts that God's given you and also make connection of how those can be useful serving God in this church, in this community. We also want to walk alongside with you. So those tools are available. You can find them at cccgo.com forward slash info under sermon resources or under serve with us. We want to walk alongside with you as you kind of figure out how you can use the gifts God's given you to serve him and to serve others. What about prayer? You know, I'm often guilty of forgetting the prayers that I prayed until God answers them, Right? I mean, we ask God for big things on a regular basis, trusting that he will provide our needs. And then we often forget like, oh yeah, I forgot I even prayed about that. Or it just amazes us when we see that happen. At nine o'clock, there was a young man who got baptized right over there in the baptistry. And when he did, I just said, thank you, God, for answering that prayer. It's a young boy named Joel that I've prayed for for three and a half years to come to faith in Christ. And to see it happen, it's like, yeah, God listens and he answers, and he responds, and he'll do that with your prayers too. What's that one prayer that you would pray for a person, or one prayer that you would ask God, be persistent in that prayer, watch him work as he answers that prayer. And then what about money? I mean, if we all gave generously, then needs around us would be met. God takes what each of us gives, he brings that together to accomplish his purposes. I wanna be clear, it's not an equal amount that God expects. It's equal surrender that makes him smile. All throughout the New Testament, Paul wrote letters to people to encourage them, and he points out how they are living out their faith. And he writes to the Corinthians a real strong challenge about growing in generosity. And in that letter, he actually refers to a group of people in the area of Macedonia who are being generous. And he describes them as being people who not only gave out of their ability, but they gave above their ability. And he tells the Corinthians, like, you are doing some really good stuff. You're smart, you're loving and compassionate, but I want you to be excellent in being generous. And then at the end, he gives them a motivation for that. He says this, 2 Corinthians 8. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The motivation that Paul used to motivate the Corinthians toward generosity was the generosity of Jesus. Jesus was fully surrendered to God. He generously gave of his time. He made the most of every opportunity. He added meaning to every relationship. 
And he sacrificed his entire life for us. His generosity was prompting generosity of the Corinthians, and it should prompt our generosity as well. I love that the Bible also includes an interaction that Jesus had with another person who was described as rich and powerful. Nothing in there is written about him being young, but it is written in there about him being short. Luke is the one who records uh, the interaction Jesus had with this man you probably know as Zacchaeus. In fact, in Luke's account of Jesus' life, they're actually back to back. I don't know that that is chronological, but it's really intentional. This rich young ruler was given the same invitation that actually Jesus made to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, because he was short and because he was a tax collector, he had been an outcast his entire life. People viewed him as a cheat, a scoundrel, a sinner. But he heard about this guy named Jesus. And because he was so short, the Bible says he climbed a tree so he could see Jesus. But more importantly, Jesus saw him. And Jesus said, hey, Zach, after church today, I'm going to come over to your house for lunch. And the people who saw that, they were appalled. Why would Jesus be generous to somebody like that? But Zacchaeus climbed out of that tree. He walked to his house with Jesus. And in the midst of them enjoying a relationship together, Unprompted by Jesus, Zacchaeus stood up and he says, I need to make a confession. <laughs> I've not really kept many of those Ten Commandments. Um, I've cheated people. I've robbed people. I've been selfish. He just goes down this list of things that he's done to probably make his wealth. And he says, but because of this generous love I've received from Jesus, I'm going to pay back four times anything I've stole from anybody, and I'm going to give half of all that I own to the poor all because of this generous love that he had experienced by Jesus. And I love what Jesus says back to him. Today, salvation's come to your house. Not because of the money, but because of him saying yes to the invitation to follow Jesus. And Jesus then follows up by saying, I, did, I came to seek and save the lost. That's the generous heart of Jesus. And I wonder if you're here today, Maybe you're rich or poor. Maybe you're young or old. It really doesn't matter. Maybe you fit into the category that we all have at one time in our life, and that's lost, like sinner, like disobedient of all Ten Commandments. You know very well the way that you've not followed God's way. And yet what Jesus doesn't say is get away from me. He says, come follow me. And that invitation is available to you today. And my prayer is that if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, today would be that day where you said yes to the generous offer of our God to overwhelmingly shower his grace upon you. Maybe you've said yes to that. And right now you found yourself maybe feeling a little trapped. You've held on to some things that really belong to this world, the things that will not last Maybe you just need to release your grimy fingers off of all that God has entrusted to you. When I hear the story of these men in the Bible, I see more a reflection in the mirror than anything. And here an overwhelming challenge and conviction by the Holy Spirit is like, continue to live and to love like Jesus who gave generously. And I pray that that would motivate all of us, Jesus' generosity, to live and to love and to give like him. If you need some help figuring out how to do that, how to say yes to Jesus for the first time, or maybe just prayer to 
to surrender your life more to him, Dave and I would love to meet you up front. We'd love to pray with you. If that feels a little weird to you or just more uncomfortable than uh, you're ready to say yes to, then you can actually just send us a text to 812-858-8668. Let us know how we can pray for you or how you'd like to respond, and we'll commit to walking alongside with you. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful that you are a generous God. You could have created the world for yourself. You could have made us your slaves. You could have withheld things that we need, even a savior, but that's not how you roll. God, you have given more than we ever deserved. And you continue to do that. You want what's best for us. You see our needs before we ask and you have promised to provide them like a loving father. Like more than God we could ever imagine is the amount of your generosity toward us. And so because of that, we want to respond by being generous. God, with money, with time, with relationships, with opportunities, with the abilities that you've, all that you've entrusted us with, Lord, we openly surrender to you. God, we want you to live on the throne of our hearts and to direct, even dictate as our Lord, how we spend, how we share, how we invest everything that you've entrusted to us. So we need your help. Your Holy Word teaches us. The example of Jesus teaches us. The power of your Holy Spirit working in us will help us. God, we pray the outcome of us being more generous with those things would be, people's lives would be blessed because of that. And more importantly, you would be glorified and people would be drawn to you. God, it's to that end we pray right now through Christ. Amen.